everybody. Welcome to the Pop My Culture Podcast. I'm Cole Stratton. And I'm Vanessa Ragland. Hey, V. How are you? I'm pretty good. How are you? So we just had a fun time yeah. talking to our guest today, um, Michael Ironside. Have who, fun hurting your finger when you scrolled on his IMDb credits. Yeah, wow. he's done a million <laughs> things. Uh, Starship Troopers, Total Recall. Top Gun. Uh, ton, tons and tons yeah. of stuff. And uh, Free Willy. Yeah, Free Willy. <laughs> Uh, so he has amazing stories about working on all these things. Yes. So get ready for a lot of great, great stories. He's a classy man with a whole lot of like insane experience. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really excited that he came on the show. Me too. A uh, tiny bit of housekeeping. Not very much. No. And the house right is very it. clean. It's very tiny. <laughs> there you go. Uh, if you like the show, leave a review on iTunes. You go to iTunes and you look up our podcast and you leave a review. Yep. That's pretty much all I do request positive reviews, but I've stopped looking. So, you know what? Write what you want, honey. <laughs> That's right. Because uh, some people are mean. That's cool. <laughs> you know. Mean people have to uh, be around to realize that other people are nice. That's right. It's all part of perspective. That's right. Circle mm-hmm. of life. Kuna Matata. Ooh. Hey, number Also, you can email us. But please not about the, the little uh, circle of life thing. Impromptu Lion King. Um, info at popmyculturepodcast.com. We read them all. We'll write you back. And uh, anything, welcome. Yeah, we appreciate all your words and some great guest suggestions have come through this way that we wouldn't have thought of but that are awesome. And just anything you have to say, feedback or just reaching out, it's great. Yep. And uh, we're getting into the holidays, which is cool. Um, Come January, uh, SF Sketch Festival will be happening, which is uh, a thing that I run. No big deal. And there most likely might be a little appearance by this said podcast in this thing. How are we ever going to get in that fast? All right. (laughs) I'll try to pull some strings. So if you're in the Bay Area in January, February, there's a chance we'll be doing a show. Yes, and we'd love to see you there, too. For sure. Uh, let's get to it, shall we? Okay. Uh, you know what? Actually, one last thing. What? We like donations. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's a good one. If you go to our website, popmyculturepodcast.com, you can click the donate button because we are listener supported. So every little bit helps us do our thing. That's right. Uh, there are so many costs, you guys. <laughs> Bottled water. Pants. Pants. We were pantsless for the first year of the podcast. And that was hard, but we did it. Why? Because we really care about you guys. And we made the guests take their pants off at the door. Because we're real Americans. That's right. Anyways, let's get to our wonderful guest, shall we? Okay, great. All right, here we go. Uh, Our guest today is a fantastic actor. He's done hundreds of things. Uh, Total Recall, Starship Troopers, Top Gun, and now he's in IFC Midnight's Extraterrestrial. Michael Ironside is here. Hello, Michael. It's good to be here. Good morning. Or good afternoon, wherever this ends up on the airways. That's true. They just listen to it whenever they want. Oh, fantastic. Hello. Nice to see you here. (laughs) Good evening. Good day. Good morning. (laughs) Top of the 3 a.m. to you, if that's what you're listening. Um, We're letting Oliver out. Bye, Ollie. Have a fun day at the park. Um, All right, well, let's start with something that's kind of interesting. Um, So we've landed on a comet. No big deal. Well, not me, not you. No. You you ran what? Uh, We've landed on a comet. The, uh, oh, isn't that wonderful? Citizens of Earth. I yeah. was interested with those photographs. Whether they said these are actual photographs, and I thought, well, you could see the actual mother device. You could see the actual so-called implant that was being sent down to the comet. Who's taking the photograph? 
It yes. was like this, and it was like it brings back the old conspiracy the theories yeah, and the moon yeah. landing and the moon is actually in a place called Sudbury Ontario and it's a and, and it, you know and they, uh, never mind but uh, yeah, the whole Capricorn one thing yeah, that's a lot yeah. like this character I'm playing in this film he's a paranoid kind of dope infused schizophrenic social outcast ex-Vietnam vet who believes that the government is full of conspiracies and that there's all this crap going on behind the scenes and it just happens he's right. <laughs> that he, instead of it being kind of like a serial killer or slasher that shows up in the woods, it's actually an alien invasion. And if I'm letting that one go, I apologize. It's, it's pretty apparent. It's apparent. That's <laughs> it's, in, it's in the trailers. but Right. And they give you a pretty great entrance in that movie, too. Um, it's well, Travis, yeah, yeah, with that gas mask. Yeah, and stuff. yeah. I think I got to tell you straight up. Is it okay we talk about the film right? Yeah, sure. right yeah, okay, sure, okay. Yeah. I'm not trying to force anything. It's, for anyone that's listening, this is early in the morning, <laughs> and I had people over to the house till one or two in the morning. Uh, anyway, when I read the script, I read it a couple of times, and I thought, my God. I've done over 200 and some odd films and I've seen just about every pancake and cookie come across the tree, you know? Yeah. And I thought this takes every possible cliche that these kind of films have the kind of teenagers, broken family marriage. Mm -hmm. They go up to the cottage. They're going to smoke their brains out and possibly have sex, hopefully have sex. <laughs> and, uh, and then they're going to be attacked by some guy slasher or, you know, some deviant. And what it turns out to be is like alien invasion. And what they, and what the, the vicious brothers did is they put every possible cliche that's been in a film and they did it so succinctly. Hmm. It was in the script. I remember reading it twice and thinking, shit, if they do this, if their filming is as, as good as their writing, yeah. this could be fun. Have you seen the film? Yeah, I watched it. And, and it is fun. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. And, uh, and I usually don't go out and support what I've done. I usually go off golfing or watch my daughter play piano and guitar. Right. And, <laughs> and uh, this one, I think, needs support because it is – I mean, too many times we go out there now and we pay our 10 or $15 and don't even get popcorn <laughs> and uh, to see a movie. And you kind of walk out wanting. And I don't think yeah. this movie does that. This movie says you're going to have a fun ride. Uh, we're treating you with respect. We're treating the material with a certain amount of respect. And the genre. And the genre, yeah. And, yeah. And, and very much so. And, uh, and we respect you. So. And that's why I'm, I'm, I want to see these guys get another shot at it. Yeah. And they I did really a do. really great job with limited budget, too. Like, it, it's, it's shot really well, considering, you know, they didn't have a, a bajillion dollars to deal with. And, <laughs> Absolutely. Um, a lot of good handheld camera stuff, and it does and, and and another thing that I, w I wanted to do here is, and it's, it just sounds kind of corny and stuff, but Brittany is so wonderful. Yeah, she's great. Mm -hmm. She's, really she's how do I say this? Um, she's like she's. I, somebody asked me quick off the cuff the other day, and I said she's not green eyes, hairs, hairspray, and TNA. She really is a woman. She's a human being. She's approachable. She's kind of like my idea of what I might, I'd like my daughters to be. Aww. Do you know what I mean? She yeah. has that sense of her own dignity, her own yeah. self, her own place. Um, as a person, and, and when I met her, and I thought, oh, wow, this is going to be fun. And then that same persona walked on set, and it was she was a delight to work with, and... Uh, I'd love to see her. She's. She, I don't know. I don't watch a lot of television. She won an Emmy. For, I know that, and I've never seen her before. And I was absolutely blown away by her performance. That's awesome. And her she work. She does a great job. 
And of course, she's got the collection of, you know, dick and hand cowboy boys around her. Right. And, stuff like that. And, and not to put them down, They're, they all play their roles, and there's the, the eye candy and all that stuff. But uh, she really is, she, she very much is the tent pole here. She really does hold this film together. And I, I watched it, I've seen the film twice now, and both times I watch it, and I see all the nuances of her performance. Mm. She's so easy to watch. Yeah, and I got to tell you guys, like I said, she's not this hourglass figured knockout. She's the kind of woman you want to spend time with. Oh, and that's you know what I mean. She's yeah. intelligent. Uh, she's not paying me to say this. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know her socially. <laughs> and uh, my wife's, my I showed my wife it on online. I, they sent me because when they sent me, I said they said, "Would well, you want to do press for this film?" I said, "Oh, mm. <laughs> send me what you got." So they sent me over the rough cut. And my wife sat down and watched it with me. She went, my God, she's great. Mm. Yeah, she's really you know, good. She, she makes it, it makes it okay to be a woman. You know? Yeah. You know, and it's also, she plays, she's the kind of persona that dignifies the character and dignifies the material. Too. Well, and in a way that the easy way out is to not. Like, you yeah, know. Yeah, is to pass comment yeah. on yourself. And yeah. She doesn't. That's so You know, great. right down to the ending, which is they take every cliche you can possibly they really do. do and push it and deliberately push it. If it feels mm. kind of awkward, it's supposed to feel. It's not yeah. bad filmmaking. It's meant to be awkward. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's uh it's yeah. got a nice little coda on it. They they did a good job of subverting expectations there and mm-hmm. sort of playing with the genre as well. I thought was great. I got a sheet here with everyone's name on it. And I can't remember. I'm 64 years old. <laughs> I called my wife and I've been together 31 years and I called her by my ex-wife's name last night. <laughs> in front of everybody and everyone it was all got quiet for a second <laughs> and I'm sitting there going what and my wife just smiled she said you called me Olga <laughs> and I went <laughs> 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 you know after 31 years if you don't believe I love you you know yeah, <laughs> but it was like <laughs> uh, she's like honey I'm slipping <laughs> it's, it's not the way I speak it's the way I touch you know, like <laughs> but uh yeah, no, I, Olga, I said, oh, God, I think I left the oven off. No, Olga's uh, a, Olga is my first. She's the yeah. mother of my my oldest, and she's a wonderful woman. She was actually assistant chief of police in Toronto for a few years. Oh, but, wow. Uh, yeah, she had a gun. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I but, am uh, impressed. <laughs> but, uh, no, Karen and I have been together 30 years. Oh, wow. Right Congratulations. 30 years great. Now, yeah. But it was funny. So I, I have a cheat list, cheat sheet here with everyone's name on it. <laughs> No, but Brittany, I, I honestly got I'm not I'm not blowing smoke up anyone's ass here. Brittany is the real deal. Yeah, she's great. She has a real good authority on screen too. Like even her first scene with her boyfriend when they're just kind of you know, before anything happens really, like it's she's really entrancing on screen. Yeah, and she's not she's I'm and I'm not saying everyone that I work with is incompetent. I'm not saying that. <laughs> everyone has a certain there's a everyone knows their craft is professional. Mm-hmm. There's those rare times you run into somebody who's special. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that has that kind of I go, Oh, you know, she's got it. Whatever Do you remember that it the is. other, like another time that's happened earlier? Uh, yeah. Uh, With someone that's probably become more. Well, not just women, but me- everyone. It yeah. was. Uh, I remember on the Machinist. Mm-hmm. On the Machinist was one of those films, and it's like, oh yeah, and so you know. But watching, watching him work. Oh my gosh, yeah. I can't imagine. It was uh, Christian's kind of like special. Yeah. yeah, he really is special, and uh, I got to do it again on T four and stuff. But uh, do you, oh, you want to hear a great story about uh, the machinist? Yeah, sure. Do you, guys, to, yeah. you know, remember that? Oh yeah. We, we shot that in Bar- Barcelona, and because uh, the actual producers on that film were sci-fi film producers, they had uh, and 
they'd sent the script around um, to about nine or ten different American places, and they all said, we want to do this, but you got to put this, you got to change that, it's too dark, it's mm-hmm. this, and they, the, the, the filmmakers kept holding on to it, Anderson and stuff, and they said, no, no, we want to do it as is, and then these, somebody sent it to these, the Spanish production company who are known for their kind of B sci-fi movies and stuff, and they said, we will do this, but you can't change anything in the script, you have to do what's in it, and they went, we're in, you know, wow. so yeah. we shot Bar- Barcelona for, I think, like Long Beach, um, and we were shooting, and, and you know, we go. We worked in this machine shop that uh, everyone went. The guys that worked there would hang up their uniforms at night, and we would walk in at night and pick up oh, our wow. overalls and walk in. It had these little, not a lot of money on that film. We had like little cabana Spanish dressing rooms and stuff. And about three weeks in, I was at the machine shop. I hear, "Hey, Mike." <laughs> and I go. I look around, and there's Christian standing in his overalls, very emaciated. Very much a physical actor. He finds something physical about the character and goes into a character that way. He says, can you look at something for me? And I went, what? With his English accent. And he turns around and he dropped his overalls and he was naked under them. He says, there's something wrong with my ass. And, and I looked and he was literally skin and bones. He was, he was like an ostrich, ostrich or um, Buchenwald kind of character. And the cheeks of his ass had literally dropped out of his hips. Oh, and, I, and I looked at him and I said, yeah, your ass has dropped. And he went, what? I said, you lost all the body fat and now you're into the, the connective tissues and stuff like that. And, and uh, um, I've broken a lot of bones of these. <laughs> and I've also played doctors. <laughs> There's a punchline there, I don't know. But, uh, and he says, what do you mean? I says, well, you've lost, you're now losing connective tissue. You've got to pretty well stop soon. And he, and he said, he said, my ass is dropped. <laughs> <laughs> and I went, yeah. And he went, he got this big crooked smile on his face. And he went, cool. <laughs> and the next day was the day he hits the maximum weight and writes it on the mirror. Oh, wow. When he's doing that, yeah. if I remember right. right. He wanted to make, when they sent him the script, he said, don't change. The writer's about five foot six. Mm-hmm. And when he wrote it, he wrote the weights for himself. Now, Christian's six something. Yeah. So he said, don't change the weights. I want to see if I can make the weights. Whoa. And he made the weights. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> when he writes those weights on the mirror, and that, that's his actual weight. Do you remember oh. the scene where he's, she goes, you're getting a little skinny, you know? And, and he goes, mm, and, he, and he curls towards yeah. her. <laughs> that's the scene they shot the next day. Oh and from that gosh. day on, he started putting weight on. And then he was Batman. And I saw right? him at... Uh, was it either Telluride or up at uh, uh, Redford's thing uh, up in Utah? And about six months later, he put on 85 pounds of beef for Batman. That's ridiculous. It was like so crazy. He walked on, I went, Holy shit. <laughs> Can I look you know, at your butt? And he butt does now? that. He, he'll, he'll go into a character physical wise. Yeah. When he did the, uh, the executive slaughter film, um, the serial killer. Oh, American Psycho. American Psycho. Yeah. He went to all the. Top gyms and trainers that train all the top, oh, really? all the Wall Street executives, oh, and, and, my gosh. and worked with a couple of them, and found one guy that works with all the top guys on the on the stock exchange, all the real psychopaths, and then worked with that guy for about three or four <laughs> months to get into that shape, you know, and stuff like that. I mean, he really is a wonderful actor. That's so yeah. great. I mean, that's <laughs> I have a hard time just getting to the gym once a week. <laughs> yeah. uh, a guy yeah. who's able to do that—that's pretty phenomenal. I yeah, think, that's crazy. Sorry, we all got kind of sidelined. No, that's no that right. was perfect. That that's was great. Kind of what we do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so there is something else that's kind of ridiculous. I think we should talk about. Oh yeah. Um, so the Discovery Channel is doing this special 
called Eaten Alive. I can't believe this is real. In which uh, Paul Rosalie, who's the host of this thing, who's kind of a nature guy, he's <laughs> going to be wearing a special suit and get covered in pig's blood and is supposedly going to get swallowed alive by an anaconda. And then I guess yanked and then out extracted. or something, which is crazy. Um, and, of course, animal rights activists are like, this can't be good for the snake at all. <laughs> I mean, who is that good for? What are we learning? There's, is there a question in this? I mean, just what's going on? I don't think it's a question so much as it's like a revulsion. Of, that's just madness, I feel like. I think there's a desperation in media. Oh, days. yeah. There's an absolute desperation that uh, the corporate society is... Like you can't create anything of substance in three months. Yeah, yeah. You know, so you have a you have a corporate society that does everything and, and quarterly functions. You know, everything's for three month cycles. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, including media, including entertainment, including education, and it's affecting our whole society. So yeah, people are trying to hit that one home run every three months. And the most extreme and, thing wins. Yeah, in and the, the thing room, that ga- you know? garners the most for this fellow getting swallowed by an anaconda and coming out its own asshole for. So you can do news. It's not unlike um, I was in South Africa. I uh, during the apartheid, I got offers to go down and make film. I said no, I'm not going to do that. Gandhi was one of my big heroes when I was a kid. Yeah, he practiced law just outside um, Shlanga in South Africa, in a place called Phoenix. But as soon as apartheid was lifted, and I got an offer to go there, I went there, and it was during the Ankara marches. And the big Zulu nation were marching in for their rights, and, and, and there was all these political factions going on. So what happened, to get news, they had to do outrageous things. To get attention, mm-hmm. they had to get do outrageous things. Now, we've all heard about the burning necklace and stuff like that, where they throw tires around guys' necks and set them on fire. Newspapers and reporters wouldn't show up for a guy doing that, so they tied about 11 guys together and threw 11 tires around their necks and set them on fire, <gasps> and oh, then wow. the press came. Uh, so maybe being swallowed by an anaconda is better than that. It's socially more acceptable, but it's still the same bullshit stunt. It yeah, yeah it really it's is. It's not entertainment. It's not at all. It's yeah. it's shock it's value. Lowest it's lowest common denominator. It's shock, shock value. Yeah. To get people to sort of like in this kind of constant barrage of information world to, that you get numb from. It's supposed to jab you to get your attention and to some level it did because i I wouldn't mind if you got my attention and then had something of substance right yeah yeah yeah. but how will that that possibly exist that road that burning rosary in south africa i saw the bodies and smelt them as we went Mm. by about six hours after it happened it's not something i'll never forget but it's an atrocity yeah Calling that entertainment is an atrocity, yeah. too. Well, especially since it's on channels like the Discovery Channel, like the Learning Channel, like have these things that... Which have been bought up by corporations and, right. and huge... Um, i, I got to be careful because I don't lie. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lousy memory, so I have a tendency to tell the truth. Because <laughs> um, so, you don't have to have a good memory to tell the truth. Um, yeah, we're going to hell in a handbasket here with a lot of our media. It's so scary. Because it's being run by dollars and cents. Yeah. yeah. It's like our education system. Why, we have an education system in the United States that's based on profit. Mm-hmm. It's you know? broken. And you've got to spend yeah. $51,000 to get through high school, to, to get through a, a name university. It's pretty bad. Yeah. You know? And when you have product where you have... Um, Product placement, product, 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 product in the middle of your entertainment. It's uh, kind of scary. Well, I think the one positive thing it's fostering is that it's frustrating artists so much that people are driven to do these independent projects and to find new ways to make it work. So, 
everything's changing, which is why things like these networks are panicking, you know. But um, you see some art like bubbling up. A friend of my, a friend of my daughter's said she's going to. They're going to this to pay money to line up to get pictures signed by. I said, "Oh, really?" And I thought I hadn't been paying attention. I said, "They were all over my daughter. My youngest is mm-hmm. fifteen. And I said, "Oh, what do they do? Are they the, are they musicians?" She said, uh, "No." I said, "Are they actors?" And she said, "No." I said, "What have they done?" And they're people who have become famous for their selfies. Oh wow! On their, Mitzi, <laughs> we're I'm I'm oh I'm, my excuse is I'm 64. You guys aren't. You got a baby on your hip, so you don't even know about this. So there's. There's thousands and thousands of these young girls and guys that are going to get photographs with guys who have become famous and girls have become famous from, from taking selfies. Only from selfies? Yeah. There's 50 of them. They're doing a tour. Yeah, it seems to me that... They're like, doing a tour? They're doing a tour. What? And you pay 15 to $50 to line up to get, no. to get a picture of them and a picture with them and to get it signed. That's crazy. What? So this, you're becoming The famous. new social currency is just like association of Instagram? But, <laughs> it's it's a weird kind of p- pornography in a funny way. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, what are you going to have to do to get a good selfie? Right. right. Come, come out of the ass of an anaconda and put your arm around somebody? <laughs> yes. Don't hey, that's touring. not a bad idea. Hey, let's do that. <laughs> Fox. Let's make it a special, yeah. Oh, my gosh. It's such uh, a weird, weird You're not time. part of the Fox Network, are you? No. Oh, uh, no. Because <laughs> yeah, I just said Fox. <laughs> so Fox off. Right. Uh, yeah, it's, it's crazy nowadays. There's so many kids coming up just want to be famous. They don't want to do anything to achieve it. It's just they just want to be famous. Hey, back to yeah. Brittany. Uh, yeah. You know, and that, that's one I think. There's a, this is a, she's an actress who has craft, mm-hmm. uh, has a sense of dignity about her, and she dignifies the material. The material's good. Yeah. She gets, she not only delivers it, she makes you she want to disappear into that world. Yeah. Right. And it's and it's not like you want, you know, they used to say the old adage in Hollywood is your leading man has to be uh, sexually attracted to females. The men have to want to be him. The females have to be fe- sexually attractive. The, you, the females got to want to be them. Yeah. And I think Brittany, uh, Brittany Anna follows that criteria. I can't imagine somebody not wanting to spend time with her. Not better not to yeah. stick around the end of an appendage and say look at i got right. you know i'm not talking about that I'm t- in a male sense i'm talking about she, she in this modern world she is somebody you want to be with you want to be stand beside you want to partner with i really yeah. hope she listens to this because it's almost like making me tear up I'm just like, oh no oh, she's nice. i don't know if she knows how i feel yeah i just light up when she walks in the room she's oh. she really is and you guys hadn't met until this project no i hadn't met um and i've only, i only knew her on the set and when we did the press junket in New York, she's actually, I think, dating one of the directors now. Uh, I can't remember. The, the Vicious Brothers. Yeah. Colin and Stewart. I can never remember which one's Colin, which one's <laughs> With a last uh, name like that, first names are irrelevant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, he's the tall one. She's, she's dating the tall one. <laughs> but, uh, and they look good together, too, so I hope that works. Nice. Yeah. You've worked with a lot of great directors throughout the years, uh, one of which early on you did Scanners with David Cronenberg, mm-hmm. and he's has a very unusual filmography if you go and look at his stuff. Uh, what was it like working with Cronenberg? It had to be uh, David, David um, what was it like working with Cronenberg? Safe. He has the most outrageous material in the world. Um, but he makes it safe for you to, to bring something to it. I mean... I always say that. Look, as an actor, 
we all want to please mommy and daddy, I think, if you're good at what you do. Because yeah. you let go of your authority for yourself and your authority. You kind of, like a good audience goes into a dark room, looks through a window into somebody else's life, you know, when you're looking at a movie. Ideally, that's why I don't think iPads and things don't work. You've got to go sit in a dark place and look through a window into somebody else's life and be safe to watch them and view them. Good filmmakers and, and people don't remind you that you're sitting in a dark room watching somebody else live. That's why you get uncomfortable in your seat when you see bad acting. They remind you that you're not supposed to be there. You're not right. supposed yeah. to be voyeuristically looking at their right. lives. And the same with actors. To go in, you, for me, I can speak for myself, but... A, I think it's the proof in the pudding with David Cronenberg. When you go to work for a director, they want you to to they want to elicit things from you that you don't normally want to give out. Right. They're private. They're they're delicate. They're sensitive things to bring something to real, especially outlandish material like David uses. David makes it safe for you to do that. He has a dignity about him, and he dignifies the work process, and kind of puts a dome over the set. I, he's just got this wonderful sense of kind of, not authority, but like the great teachers. You know when you're with a great teacher and you sit there like in high school or in public school when you're kids and you go, oh, I want him, I want to please him. Yeah, and yeah. I want I want to let him know that I'm listening, and I want to I want to have a dialogue with him. Mm-hmm. And David does that, and because uh, look at he does some outrageous shit. Yeah, yeah. I mean going Crazy. going back to you know Spetters and the Brood, which the Brood I think is one of his best films. That and Spider, um, which wasn't even his material, but uh, and so because I play this psychopathic, sociopathic, you know. Um, genetically altered you know political terrorist your wheelhouse you know, <laughs> in, in scanners and I come from a working class labor background where they held union meetings in my, my dad's kitchen so I brought that kind of energy to it yeah. and David gave me permission you know to bring that emotion and he, and you feel so when he said no I want you to bring this here or I want you to push it left or push it right and I won't use acting terms, but um, you felt safe with his direction, you know. And there's, I'm look, I've done two hundred and some odd films. There's probably only a handful of directors I feel that way about. Yeah. And not that the rest they're all incompetent. No, they're not. It's like everyone drives a car these days. Not everyone I would get into a car and let them go 150 miles an hour with, right. unless you know what you're doing. Yeah. And there's about five or six people out there that um, I would do that with. Paul Vero and. David Cronenberg, uh, a guy named Rob Schmidt, um, Rob Barancano, he's a director on the East Coast. He does something like every couple of years. Um, Walter Hill, who's getting a little long in the tooth now. Mm-hmm. Walter, if you hear this, I apologize. <laughs> uh, there's a few, I don't want to keep on going because then the people say, you didn't mention me. Right. But that's not that they're incompetent. It's just that there's people you work for that you feel safe giving them private information and letting them use that private emotion. And uh, David's very much one of those. Yeah. Right. You, uh, I mean, you've definitely made a living playing very authoritative characters in the past. And on Top Gun, is it true that, like, sailors on the actual ship thought you were an officer? And Not on the ship. I was never on the aircraft. I actually, the story I think you're referring to, as I told once, was, uh, excuse me, I have to kill this dog. <laughs> He's trying to chime in. It's Mexican. <laughs> He's barking in Mexican. It's great. Spanish. Not even that. Not even You've Spanish. You've got a good ear, sir. Um, 
what they're referring to, I think, is that I never felt right in that character because um, everyone was very young on that film. I was the old man. It was Scarrett and I were the two older guys. Mm-hmm. And even on the base down at Miramar, everyone was in their like teens, early 20s. And I think I was all of about 34 at the time, you know, over the hill. <laughs> and, uh, and I was in pretty good shape. And I felt I come from a military background, my family and stuff. And uh, but I didn't feel right. And I thought, God, I don't feel right. I don't feel right. And we were up getting our flight suits tested, the G-suits. When you get in, you go into zero gravity, you have to have something so all the blood doesn't rush into your testicles and your feet and you die from, <laughs> from brain anemia <laughs> or other places. Right. Sorry. No, I can relate. <laughs> but, um, so they give you G-suits and that forces all the blood up in your body cavity so you won't black out as easy and cause bodily damage. We were getting, and they were, everyone was trying them on and all the guys are like, Built like brick shit houses, and I'm feeling over the hill. And I stepped outside, and we were upstairs in one of the hangars. And I stepped out in the corridor, and I thought, I wonder if they can rewrite this, and if somebody else can play this. I got really paranoid about mm. it. I don't know if I can do this character. And I was standing there thinking, and I'm in, and I was in my lieutenant commander's uniform, and I was standing there, and I heard this, and this lieutenant came flying around the corner. And stopped dead in his tracks while I'm sitting there thinking, I don't think I can play this. I don't just. And I looked, and he's standing at absolute attention with his hand. Oh my gosh. And I looked at him and I I said, I I said, slow down. He said, yes, sir. And I slewed him and he walked to the next corner. Then I heard him (laughs) take off down the corridor again. (laughs) And I went, Maybe I can do this. (laughs) You know, I'm it. You know know what I mean? I'd forgotten that costumes say who you are as yes. a character the writing says what you are all I got to do is bring the emotion and the commitment right. and and in that moment I was just a preoccupied lieutenant commander standing mm-hmm. on you know standing in an upper corridor in a hangar and that was that's an absolute true story because <laughs> awesome. I really did I felt come on you when you become a kid when you're an actor you're pretty much like a kid do 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 we're gonna go play yeah you know and the little guy inside me felt like I wasn't part of I was less than, mm. I'm older, I'm not as good shape, I've got less hair, you know, and girls don't go, <gasps> as I walk by, like, you know, you got Val Kilmer, you got Rosevich, and they're all cut. Those guys, right. it's not like today where they do it with CGI and they paint in the little right. muscles. Right. These guys were in great shape. I remember sitting there watching that volleyball game when they were doing Top Ooh. Gun, and, they, and somebody said, hey, Ironside, do you want to get in on this? And I thought, do I want to take my shirt off? Uh, do we have all, a shirts team? Because you know, <laughs> they were cut, and they were yeah. in great shape. Even Tony Edwards, no offense, Tony, he was in shape. Yeah. You know? That's such good a good memories. lesson as a performer, though, because I think everybody doubts themselves like that. But just to remember that your job is to bring yourself. It's constant, but I mean... It's a, it's kind of a tightrope, I think, as an actor. I can't speak for all actors and talk for me, but there's an emotional tightrope. You're on one side is the emotion, on the other side is the physicality. You've yeah. got to balance the two. And I think sometimes I get a little, I still do. Uh, I wonder, is this appropriate? Am I appropriate? Is what I'm doing appropriate for this piece of material? You know. Uh, and quite frankly, I'm at a stage now in my life where I'm actually learning things again. Yeah. It's. Uh, I think we go through quarters. You go out of one room, you walk through a quarter, and you go through another room. I keep. I know it's a worn out cliche, but it's the truth. It's the best one I can come up with. Do you have any advice for other actors that might find themselves in that position of doubt? I don't know. I just uh, trust the material. Trust. Yeah. You know, I can't speak for other actors. Um, 
we're in a we're in an age of you, they point a camera at you and they make you an actor and I don't mm -hmm. know if a lot of the, if that's true, you know an actor is somebody who can find an emotion and then recreate it. On Total Recall, we shot scenes that we do one side of the scene and then come back to it three months later and do mm. the other side of the scene because of the special effects in those days right. and yeah. the, we were just barely starting to use green screen and the sets were so elaborate you'd do one half of a scene and have to return to it Wow! sometimes I think one we did was almost three months later and you got to be able to recreate what you did three months before and keep it in emotionally continuity um, that takes a certain amount of training yeah. or, or innate skill now if you have innate skill uh, great that's wonderful. I didn't have that. I had to be trained up the hoop before I went out. And I think a lot of people nowadays can find stuff. It's wonderful, entertaining stuff. But I don't see them recreating it. Hmm. You know, I've worked with actors where they find it. I go, wow, this is amazing, mercurial stuff they're doing. And then we change camera positions, and they and come up with gone. something completely different. Hmm. And I'm going, and that's why they're using two and three cameras sometimes, right. you know. And yeah. I guess it works. Uh, I don't know how satisfying it is. It's yeah. kind of like kind of masturbation for me. It's not really dancing or making love. Yeah. It's kind of self-indulgent. No, I get that. Is that? I mean, I hope I'm not yeah. too serious no. about it. No, that's first, great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, you've had to do a little bit of stunt work in the past, right? I've done a lot. Yeah. yeah. How, how is that for you? Well, I've got two artificial knees. Uh, both so my great. shoulders have been done. No. Uh, my lower back, uh, my pelvis. <gasps> Uh, what else? I've had 17 major surgeries in the last 20 years. Oh, wow. Just from banging on. Some of it is from early drinking and going through windshields and shit and saying, hey, I'll see you later and walking off a roof, you know. Oh, that's good. Uh, yeah. That's, yeah, that was good. <laughs> uh, I've been sober 31 years now. Oh, congratulations. But, yeah, well, it's, it's, uh, it's easy on the face, but... Um, <laughs> Yeah, I've busted a lot of stuff. I came up in Canada. I'm from Canada, and we, we were kind of reinventing the wheel when we started back in the '70s. Uh, you know, we we didn't have the the expertise of California and the Hollywood business and stuff. We yeah. were trying to do everything Canadian. The joke was that uh, wherever the camera was, we got to make a film. That one camera in Canada. A friend of mine once. <laughs> oh, where are you in Toronto? They must. The camera must be there this week. Um, but uh, I got, and I did. I do I, the characters I play when I first came to the, came up in the industry were a lot of action characters. Yeah. And if you let a stunt double do it, um, not that I, I've used lots of stunt mm. doubles, and God bless them, and some of them I've had to retire because they were covering for me. Ah. <laughs> they got busted up so bad. But the nature of some of my characters was that they do something and then they say something at the same time, and it's very hard to do it in a wide shot and then jump into a close-up and do right. it seamless. So I did a lot of stuff myself. Uh, some of it good, some of it not so good. And that's why we have stunt doubles. But, uh, and in doing so, I got busted up. Oh I remember gosh. doing a film in Chicago, and uh, I was actually playing a half-decently healthy human being in this one. I was in The Bad Guy. And there was a scene where I'm in this Chevy Malibu, and it's got all these, these explosives, and I'm supposed to jump out of the car, and it goes under a bridge abutment and blows up under the bridge. And my stunt double... Um, and it was a fairly simple shot. It was, you know, it goes down, he gets out of the window and jumps out of the driver's side off camera, and the car goes on, boom, blows up. Well, he missed the bag, the airbag. He missed it by about two feet, hit his head on the curb. Huh? <gasps> cracked his head open. Ah! And we had the location only for about another hour and a half. And while he was on the hospital, 
going to the hospital. There was nobody else that even looked like me on the set. And I, and I went, oh, shoot. All right, all right, all right, all right. Slow the car down, speed the camera up or something, I'll do it. <laughs> and uh, slow the car down. I went, I jumped out of the Malibu. I missed the airbag, <gasps> but I didn't hit the curb I, I with my head. I hit it with my shoulder and completely collapsed my left shoulder. <gasps> Man. I remember standing up and I thought, hey, look, I can scratch my knee without bending over. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and the cool. shot worked. It was a good shot because it actually I cleared camera and then I hit the curb uh, when Matt had done it. it was like, Matt, Matt never worked yeah. again. That was his, he ended up being stunt coordinator. He never did on camera work after that. He really did smash his head up. Oh, my bad. gosh. But uh, he's passed now, so I can talk about him. But uh, I remember we took me to, we got the shot, they turned the camera around. We kind of faked it with me standing there. I got up and I stood there and we did the close-up and walked off camera. And we got it We got it because it was right downtown Chicago. With your smashed shoulder. Yeah, I just turned turned to the left because um, you got to get the show. You had to get out yeah. of here. We were only downtown. So anyway, they take me to the hospital. <laughs> and uh, the doctor says, yeah, you've completely collapsed your whole left shoulder. He says, nothing's really – he says, well, we, there's kind of some cracks. He says, but uh, I really – you've got to – get it all set and I said can you set it in somewhere I can put a jacket or a shirt on so when they taped me up they taped it up and taped it and I, he says you're going to need surgery because you got to have some bolts put in there to hold it all together and he, they brought it back up did this incredible tape job on me so I could put a jacket and a shirt on and I finished in that the next two weeks of the film because we still had two weeks to film doing everything with my right hand and uh. this sort of thing and running and driving and, and uh, <laughs> I swear to God I can't remember the name of the film um, but anyway, by the time I got back to L.A., about three weeks later, I went down to Cedars and saw my ortho guy, and he went, who did this tape job? It's brilliant. It's really good. And he said, well, he said, I need screws. He says, maybe if it goes again. Uh, um, maybe, you know. And uh, that was 11 years ago, you know. Because the tape job was so good, you healed, so good. Correct? And three months ago, I was in Oklahoma, and I did a simple fall. <gasps> and the shoulder went again. No. <laughs> and, and, and I had the, so that tape job I got in Chicago lasted almost eleven years. Fly back to Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> so they uh, they actually put it back together and put screws in and staples and. Oh my gosh! Just recently, so. It always seems that so. Like, you're asking me about what's it like to do action yeah, figures? You get, you get banged yeah. up. Yeah. Everyone gets banged up. Yeah. yeah, you just get banged up. It's part of the game, you know. You got you had one, and I guess in Highlander too. That was pretty crazy tough. Uh, yeah. Were well, you talking about when Chris dislocated my jaw? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Is, uh, uh, That's well, well, Chris Lambert. <laughs> Chris is Christoph, Christoph uh, is French. Now, French do everything with their feet. They're soccer players, you know, bocce and all this stuff. Uh, they're not, maybe now they're known as boxers, but they don't know how to throw a punch really well. I, I shouldn't speak. Well, f- he's French. <laughs> Chris, Chris had never been called for. And there was a sequence where he had to throw a right cross and catch me in the middle of this fight scene. And, and um, Tommy Huff and uh, some of the, spe- they're past now too. God, I'm getting old. But uh, they were showing Chris how to do it. And he was walking around, swinging his right arm, practicing, throwing this right punch. <laughs> And uh, he was just throwing these haymakers as he walked around set. And I was talking to to my friends and stuff. And I was standing there and I looked up and I thought, oh. And he was had his head down and he was oh, back. No. And he stepped right up and caught me on the right side of my face with this shot. Um, oh. Missed Tommy Huff's ear. Clipped Tommy Huff's ear and hit me. <gasps> and, my, and I was talking. I caught oh. and, and my whole jaw came out. <laughs> it all popped out and went to the right. And I, it sounded like... 
a siren going off. It was the weirdest sound. It was this high-pitched squealing going on in my head. And uh, Tommy Huff grabbed me, and uh, the other stunt stunt coordinator said, now relax, relax. And he he slapped me in the forehead. And I went, ugh. (laughs) And he pulled and put my jaw back in. Oh, Pulled it out and put it back in. Oh, my God. And... uh, Every part of my I body is like I couldn't pulling. walk for three days because it affected the balance uh, of my ear. I went to get up and fell over, and because uh, I couldn't walk for almost two and a half. I think we did it two and a half days later. I could do one of the sequences where I was leaning against the wall where he comes at me. And it was the huge fight scene that we do with the swords and everything. Mm-hmm. But uh, and it was all right. We had overrun the sets, and uh, uh, they had built the sets, and we. We're shooting so quickly, we'd overrun the actual set. So they needed a couple of days to do some stuff. And uh, but uh, I remember Chris apologized. Christoph apologizing, but he had this weird glint in his eye, like because he did it. Because I did it. <laughs> I, I knocked his jaw. You know, like, I might be French, French, but look, freak you. But, uh, every time I see him, I always wiggle my jaw. And go, How you doing, Chris? <laughs> I saw him on a flight about four months ago. Uh, from Montreal to New York, or New York to Montreal, and then we were laughing about it. But uh, yeah, that was that was bizarre. Also, um, but a week before that, we were doing the sequence with the swords, and there's a lot of sparking. How they made those swords spark is they're they're an alloy sword, and there's an electrode wire attached to them that runs down your arm, down your back, down along the floor, and is attached to. Um, not AC, but DC kind of current, so that when the swords hit each other or touch something, it's grounded, oh, they wow. spark. Oh, wow, that's crazy. And we were doing this, and we were doing this fight scene, this long fight scene, and one of the sequences, um, there's this parry, he swings, and I block it on the top, and then I turn around, and I swing, and my sword was supposed to run down the side of this elevator cage and he, that he jumps behind. And just as we did it, halfway through it, I looked, and I saw something on the edge of it, and I thought, what is that? And I felt it go boom, boom. As I went like that with my sword, and I turned around and went to Perry, waiting for the other, and it didn't come, it didn't come, and they called cut. What that thing was, it was, was Chris's hand. <gasps> he had jumped behind the elevator and left his hand sticking out, and I peeled the whole top of his hand <gasps> off. Oh, no. From the wrist to the knuckles. It was, I think it was about 86 stitches to put oh, it back together. Oh, my again. gosh. And uh, so I've often wondered, but that was his left hand. I was often wondering if that punch was his way of payback. <laughs> payback. That's what the you know, grin for, was. <laughs> so he, he was incompetent twice, and I had to pay the price for it. You know? but, uh, but I remember in all the sparks seeing that thing sticking out and going, what is that? And then cut, and he walked out, and he literally the whole top of his hand had been. Oh, God. They stitched him up. He was back to work the next day. That's crazy. He's, he's, a, he's a tough dude. And you met Connery on that as well, right? That oh, was, do you know that story? That you met him in... Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Frank Rosati, the stunt coordinator, who my dearest, one of my dearest friends who's passed, he passed a couple of years ago. It was actually him who grabbed me when Tommy, when, or Tommy Huff grabbed me and Frank Rosati put my job back in. Frank was an incredible guy. He... Uh, it was a six and a half month shoot and I had nothing else to do so the flying sequences in those days were done on wires we did them on you know your two stories above the guys are going to fly are going to fly mm-hmm. they're on wires and cables and stuff and we were down in this part of the dock area in Buenos Aires where we shot the film and we built this city and when I had nothing to do I'd go down and help the crew the stunt crews and the second unit kind of do all the rigging and stuff because either that or you sit playing with yourself in the hotel room and uh, we'd already been shooting for about two months they'd cut a trailer together sold it at con and got a huge reaction to the trailer that, mm. and they had got financing for their third film 
for Highlander 3. And so we're sitting there working, and I'm in rubber boots, very unattractive pair of um, Argentinian shorts <laughs> and, uh, and a singlet. And covered in grease because they're greasing all the pulleys and the wires and stuff with Frank with the stunt guys and the second unit guys. And this crowd comes walking down the street, and it's all the foreign press with Sean Connery. Sean had arrived, <laughs> and he walked up and they go, "Oh, Mr. Ironside, this is Mr. Sean Connery. Sean Connery, Michael Ironside." And he stuck his head out and said, "Hello, <laughs> Michael." And I went, "Hi, my name's Michael Ironside. I I, I don't I play Catan in the film. Uh, well, I don't play it in these clothes. I have a cape and a big sword. Oh my God! I literally." I literally so and and um, and uh, it's a pleasure to work with you, sir. And I left his hand out there, like sticking. Out oh there, my god! Because I was all covered. In and he tapped me on the shoulder, and he said, "Of course you do, young man." Oh and we kept my on gosh. walking. <laughs> and I looked around, and Frank was out. He taught me how, and the whole second unit crew were laughing. <laughs> I've got it on tape. Frank had a video camera set up. That's why I know what it looks That's like. That's I turned amazing. into a puddle of piss. I turned into this <laughs> seven-year-old boy. It's Sean Connery. I'd never met yeah. him before. I'm like, hi, my name's Michael. I play guitar. <laughs> so the next day I walk on set, and I've got my cape, and i got the hair glued on me, and i got my sword. And I walked over and I said, hello, because I'm in character. It's yeah. easier. And he goes, you're feeling better today. <laughs> it was like that. And I went, yeah. I said, sorry about yesterday. He said, I hear you're from Toronto. I know your work, blah, blah, blah. And uh, we had a pretty good conversation we became friends actually oh that's great but uh acquaintances he's a cruelly cheap son of a bitch <laughs> uh, um, he's notorious for saving money yeah. you know he would leave everyone with a lunch ticket he'd say oh, excuse me and not come back and leave you with the ticket and, uh, <laughs> and he was only there like two weeks and everyone was complaining about it and uh diane lane who was chris married to chris at the time she came down and she says you know the connery guy beat me for like $38 tab yesterday and I said yeah he got me we're all said so his last day I said I got a way of doing it I got some he's not called till around 11 most of us aren't until the night shoots let's all go down have breakfast and then I'll invite him down and I'll just go to the washroom and uh, so we, and we all went down had breakfast sat around had some stuff and all of that and then he came down and said will you join me he said of course I will he joined me and I said excuse me I gotta go to the washroom and I never came back and when he got to set he was laughing his ass off he said nobody's ever got me like that I think it worked out to be about $800 oh my god tab for breakfast nice you know and, one uh, for the little people but it was it was cool though because he had stuck it to just about everybody that's so funny I asked him about that I remember saying to him, I said, I said, have you always been this way? He says, I've always had a neurosis around money. I never think there's enough. It's where I come from, you know, and uh, I kind of understand that, but at the expense of others. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, you think they're doing worse than you? <laughs> he was a joy to work with. It's great to work with people that know their stuff. Yeah, that's it's awesome. Well, let's do uh, let's do first. Okay, we do this great. every podcast, a different first from life. Uh, a couple of things you've worked on have been based on great science fiction books. So the question is, what was the first science fiction book you can remember being into? Uh, A.J. Vought's uh, Slan series. Whoa. Uh, my grandfather was an aficionado of sci-fi. I read that, I think, when I was about seven. Um, it's kind of a precursor for Scanners. It was about alien-altered people who... Uh, communicate telepathically and they have hair-like antenna in there and they're the next genetically changed for human beings and we need them and 
everyone gets paranoid because they're better than us, so we start hunting them down. And it becomes a social political novel, which all sci-fi, good sci-fi yeah. is. And they're hunting them down on witch hunts. And it follows this one character and how he's trying to get to the head of the world mm. to plead his case, please, because we're being slaughtered prejudicial, prejudiciously. And he gets there, and the head of the world is a slant who's cut his antennae off. Oh. At the end of the third book, I think it is. So that was, the, I think they were written in the late 40s, early 50s. That was the first one. Like, I remember that and, and Edgar Rice Burroughs, um, the Martian Chronicles, oh, yeah. and, and uh, John Carter stuff. And the, uh, the Ape Man. Pretty good sci fi. Nice. How about you, Vanessa? What was yours? Um, Wrinkle in Time and the Madeline Lingle books. I think those were. I was never very drawn to science fiction, mm-hmm. but those were so good. I know a lot of girls that feel the same way. Like, that was a great introduction to the world because the characters and they're, like... It's it's like what a lot of science fiction is doing now, trying to appeal to more, you know, uh, men and women at once. But I remember loving it because it felt like both a coming-of-age novel about a girl like me and also, like, opened up this huge, crazy world. So I my, got into it after that. My grandfather was a member that... There was a sci-fi private club in the late 40s, early 50s, because it wasn't accepted mainstream literature. And so you had everyone from uh, The Beast to uh, Heinlein and Frank Herbert and all these people that were writing, I think it was called Popular, not Popular Science, it was Sci-Fi Mag or something like that. It was a a club, it was a private Mm. publication that later went public. And my grandfather, Finley Ironside, uh, my dad's dad, who had a chemical and electrical engineer's degree from Aberdeen in Scotland, was part of that group. And they would send him stuff to uh, to check over technically and stuff. Oh, and wow. They would meet and stuff. And uh, I read Dune out of a shoebox. Oh, with, really? And on the title page it said, Jock, uh, have a look at this and see if you can find any bugaboos. Oh, my gosh. And signed Robert. <laughs> So that I remember reading that. So when it came out in a novel, I remember thinking, "They got Granddad's book." I was that, that's how young I was, oh. you know. When I because I went, I read it as a as a kid. So that I was kind of cut my teeth on it at an early age. That's so nice. awesome. Nice. You know. I think for me, it was it might have been Bradbury stuff like uh, Rivers right. for Rocket mm-hmm. and Martian Chronicles and stuff. And I also loved John Windham a lot when I was uh-huh. growing up. So Midwich Cuckoos, which became Village of the Damned. Yeah, and the, and what's the one about Quebec? Um, where there's the it's a wonderful his story about the socially camps for the the for the mutants in northern Quebec and oh yeah uh, I've always wondered why they never made that into a movie a lot of his stuff I can't like the day of the triffids yeah, and all triffids that stuff is fantastic triffids. but God what's the name of that um, it's his trouble with lichen there's God. But you know what I mean? Yeah, it be, yeah. And it becomes a socially political novel again, mm-hmm. like good sci-fi is, that you're a mutant even if you don't think like the mainstream. So they send those to these camps in northern Quebec. Yeah. You know, and there's the Spider-Man who's physically too long on the arms, mm-hmm. and there's the woman who's too beautiful, and the guy whose feet are too big, and all the, the excuses they have for isolating original thought and stuff mm-hmm. like that. It's quite a good author, quite a good yeah, writer. he's fantastic. And he, he did everything in such short, capsulated <laughs> material. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of his books aren't that long. And you wrote Midwich, Midwich I remember reading as a kid. Yeah, Midwich is great. And I like those movies, too. I think yeah. they did a pretty good job with those. Um, Vincent Price, isn't it? No, who the first who? one's George Sanders, I think. George Sanders, Vincent yeah. Price, George Sanders. The, yeah. the American version of George Sanders. Vincent mm-hmm. Price, yeah, yeah. And, and then the follow-up was pretty good, too. The Children of the Damned was pretty nice, too. Children of so the Damned, yeah, yeah. Uh, made some pretty good, pretty good movies out of his stuff. Our first special effects when their eyes glued. glued. 
Yeah, they would glow and get yeah. them to do things. Yeah. First foray into genetic manipulation and stuff. He did a lot of talk about that. Yeah. And his stuff, yeah. Stuff's great. Well, let's do, uh, let's do my questions. These are five trivia questions from some of your past projects. Okay. Let's see how you do. Uh, first, you played Jester in the Tony Scott classic Top Gun. To whom is the film dedicated? I have no idea. Uh, Art Schul, who is a renowned stunt pilot who, I guess, died making... That's right, making no. the, the uh, POV shots, the um, traveling... The... When, when the, yeah, the tail spin. They have the flame out. Yeah. Oh, the wow. The film's coming down. There's my accent, Canadian accent. Uh. The flame out. Um, he was shooting that. And he, yeah. Yeah, they dedicated it to him. Art. Yeah. Um, all right, question two. You played Bob Brown in The Perfect Storm. What is the name of the sword fishing boat in the I film? I have no idea. Uh, Andrea Gale. Sorry about that. The yeah, no <laughs> uh, I think you'll get this one, though. You played Richter in the Arnold Sci-Fi Classic Total Recall. Mm-hmm. It's based on what book? Uh, Robert Heinlein's... Uh, you know, I can't remember anything when I'm working. <laughs> it's all right. Uh, we, Stra- can, we can remember it for you wholesale. Oh, that's it, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We remember it for you wholesale. Heinlein did the, um, the Starship Troopers one. Yeah. Uh, you played Dial, owner of... That was a short Park. story. That's one of his short stories. Yeah, a lot yeah. of his short stories get made into films. Like, they take the nugget of That's Philip K. Dick? Yeah. 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 He also did Blade Runner's uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric yeah. Sheep. That one, yeah. too. Uh, you played Dial, owner of the amusement park in Free Willy. Uh, what's the name of the orca who played Willy? Oh, Keiko. Yeah. Yes, I remember Keiko. I worked with him. <laughs> He's a good actor. <laughs> <laughs> Newest chaps. <laughs> Saddest thing. That, a lot of people don't know that that was a... Um, because they've seen it generations since. Yeah. That was a long time ago. That was th- almost 30 years ago. Uh, that that was Mexico City. That's in a mer- that's shot in a marina, in an aquarium in Mexico City. Oh, wow. And the exteriors we shot with an um, um, uh, animatronic, you know, kind of robot whale up in... Uh, Port, um, in Port Astoria in Oregon but all the all the um, marina shots and the stuff are all shot in Mexico City he was literally trapped there and uh, Richard Reilly who plays my, my buddy in that uh, our hotel wasn't that far from there and we were out and there wasn't much to do at night um, when we were down there shooting and we were walking and uh, everyone at the park knew us so we were into the marine park because he said what's that noise and it was him crying in the middle of the night, oh. just this high pitched crying. Oh my god! And we got over to the tank, and he was literally facing towards the Pacific Ocean, wherever oh it was, just gosh. calling night after night after night. Oh. And God, uh, literally needed to. And, they, and so when they got when they got him out of there, they finally got him. Out, he got released. I think it was almost nine years afterwards. Oh. It was a big movement called Free Your Willy. Mm. You know, the English love that because it's <laughs> male, male But uh, yeah, they finally. I think he was released. Almost nine years after the film came out. Wow! But uh, it was very sad. Yeah. Yeah, that's hard. Also, it uh, no, that that story would be inappropriate, so I won't tell that one. He got aroused one day. Oh no! He did. Yes, he. They're quite well endowed. (laughs) I I would imagine. Killer whales. (laughs) Uh, And the handler got one of the women were on there. Was on there monthly. Oh, one of the handlers, no. and the whale got all excited. He doesn't know who he is. Yeah. He's never seen other orcas. He's been there since he was oh. like a baby. Right. And all of a sudden, he's picking up this scent, and he was like, "Hey, oh. what is that? I want some." You know? Oh and we, my god! We couldn't shoot that day. So. Oh no! And <laughs> so we got everyone in the crew that was female got a memo. Oh right? my gosh! Stay away from the <laughs> yeah, stay away from the facility. <laughs> the calendar. If, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that is bizarre. That's probably more information than you need. <laughs> no, that's great. <laughs> that's great. I got one more. 
Okay. Uh, you played Daryl Revek in Scanners. Revik. Revik, sorry. The iconic exploding head sequence was achieved with filling a fake head with what? Uh, chicken livers and uh, some other guts and stuff. Uh, do you want to hear a story about that? Yeah, I'd be yeah. great. I've told this countless times. We were kind of reinventing the wheel when we did that. Even David, special effects and stuff. They made a cast of my head. And this is before Dick Smith came on the film. Dick Smith came on after we'd finished shooting the film and we reshot the ending four months later. Those incredible special effects at the end of the film with all the bladders. That's Dick's work. This was not Dick's work. Excuse me, it was, I think, Stephen Dupuy, and he did a really good bust of me. And they had filled the um, Louis Del Grandi's head in the bust of him, that's the character of with chicken livers and guts and liver and blood and stuff. And they were going to shotgun the head. They put a shotgun behind the head, just below the where the spinal cord would meet, and they shoot forward and it blows the whole part of the head off. And I saw the setup, and all the cameras, I get there, and all the cameras are all covered with plexiglass. There's a huge enclosure. And I'm sitting there, and they said, well, you're going to sit there. And I said, I'm going to sit where? And they said, sit there. I said, I'll tell you what. And Claude Rue was the line producer. I said, I want a million-dollar light um, insurance policy against any kind of damages. I want um, sign-off that you'll pay for all damages, blah, 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 blah. And, uh, and he said, well, no, no, you're okay. They tell me you're okay. And I said, Claude, I'm not uh-huh. sitting in that chair until we do this because yeah. we're reinventing the wheel. We'd already yeah. had some screw-ups on the set that were like little mechanical things. And if I'm going to be okay? And if I'm going to be okay, first. that's fine. Yeah. But uh, if you want me to sit here and get all tense and then, uh. and, well, you're blown, firing a shotgun less than two feet beside me. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And he said, no, 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 never mind. We can't do that. We can't do that. No, no. And so they aimed all three cameras into two different, three different sides, and they framed me out. The seat I was sitting in got shredded because no. all, the, all the shotgun pellets went up, hit the plexiglass, and bounced back. Oh, and, my god! And about 40 of them hit all around the chair where I was sitting. Whoa. And I was sitting in the audience watching it, and I saw the chair go, <laughs> kind of vibrate, and I walked up, and you could see all where all the pellets had hit. And everyone went, Boy, that was a good call, Ironside. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and that wasn't deliberate. It was just yeah. everything in those days. Is, yeah. You know, you got time, time, time. Figuring it as it goes. Everyone's yeah. saying, well, this should work. <laughs> it's just my face and my eyes, you know. Right. But that's... Whoa. Uh, yes. Yeah, call on that. Yeah, so that was full of dog food, chicken <laughs> livers, and I think... Uh, I don't think they used real blood. It's a pretty good shot, though. Yeah, it you, looks pretty uh, amazing. Every, every, every pubescent boy and has always put it on VCRs and DVDs and slowed it down <laughs> yeah. to watch all the pieces come out. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, pretty you're amazing. one of those, aren't you? <laughs> you see his eyes light up, a yeah. little creep. It was, kind of a, it was a cool shot. It was a cool shot. Uh, these are my questions. They won't take long. Okay. They're rapid fire. Okay. Um, and okay? they're silly. Uh, have you ever met an Olsen twin? No. Okay. If you could be the protagonist in any film you've done, which role would you take? Hmm, that's a good question. Uh, I can't answer that with a passing judgment on the people who've played those roles, so I'd rather not. You know, smart, grown-up response. Yeah, you because know, that's not fair. You know. Do you remember being on any set thinking like, "Oh, I wish I could try"? That no, I've or... been offered roles and took the other guy. Oh, really? Yeah, because I didn't really feel. I had low self-esteem. Yeah, you're like, I'm not this guy. <laughs> I'm, I'm not the guy. I should be the guy that kills the guy. You know? And uh, I actually did that for a female director. And I, I said, no, I'd rather play this character. And she goes, what? I said, look, I am not 
that attractive. And she literally said, she said, everyone out of the room. And because I was taking this meeting with this, I won't mention her, she's great. Mm. And, uh, and she got me one-on-one. She said, how dare you fucking tell me that my taste and, 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 and my attitudes towards sexuality are not valid? You know, if I find you sexually attractive and I'm not coming on to you, how dare you deny me and say that that is and negate me? What you know, yes, my, you have, ma'am. You know, you have no say in the matter. <laughs> you know, I love that. And I said, okay, I'll play the part, and I did it. And uh, I said, but but I want some changes. <laughs> she says, that's, and we turned it into slightly a comedy. It was a western, but uh, that was you know what I mean. So I had really kind of not a low self esteem. I just. I'm not shit. I guess, it, how do I say this? I've never been comfortable being me. Yeah. That's why I think acting works so well. Mm-hmm. You know, I can step into somebody else and be me, but nobody knows it's me. Right, right. You know, so, that, sorry. No, that's no, a great, great answer. answer. Okay, if, now this is a silly one. If you had to go back and turn one of your projects into a comedy, which one would you do? Oh. Uh... Probably RoboCop. It was offered to me, and I said, oh, I to play the killer in it. And I said, no. I thought that that would be... And I turned it down because I was doing Extreme Prejudice. I'd been being killed for six days when they offered it to me. And, <laughs> and, and I said, no, I can't do this. And Paul was really kind of pissed off. But uh, uh, the people that did that... But I, I, I think RoboCop could be a great musical. Oh, that's awesome. Could, yeah. You know what I mean? Because yeah, yeah. you got the anti-hero, you got all that, and there could be a lot of humor in that, too. That's great. You know. Um, okay, I heard via your... That's pretty bizarre, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Robocop, you know, doing an Robocop area. on ice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I am misunderstood. <laughs> um, I heard via your Reddit AMA that you're a good cook. So what is your go-to meal? Uh, go-to meal would probably be um, uh, ribs, side ribs. Beef, Ooh. Beef or pork. You make a kind of special sauce to I do. I do a marinade and stuff like that. that oh, yeah. Uh, my wife and I had the, the, the misguided assumption that someday we were going to open a bed and breakfast on the California coast north of San Francisco. Oh. Offered meals Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night. And I thought if I had 11 items, it would cover us. And we got the 11 items, and now I'm 64. And the last thing I want to do is serve <laughs> other people. That's the pipe dream of a 40-year-old. Right? Yeah. It's, you know? Somebody needs to take care of me. I have about 11 good meals, but that's probably a good one. That's great. Um, and this is your last one. You've angered a wizard, obviously, and he's given you the choice between two punishments. Either you wake up every day to David Cronenberg describing one of his dreams to you, <laughs> or you can never golf again. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's tough. Yeah. Wizards are jerks. You know I'm an absolute golf freak. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I could weather David's dreams on a daily basis. Uh, I'm not willing to give up golf for that. I think after you two or three of David's dreams, you might... God, no, I don't think so. You'll be numb to them. No, he's, <laughs> he's just so creative. <laughs> I had a dream last night. Uh, that's a good question. Oh, thanks. <laughs> well, you did it, Michael. You made it all the way through. Uh, oh. Thanks for being here. Check out Extraterrestrial, guys. Yeah. It's really fantastic. It's a lot of fun. It's and worth seeing. It yeah. really yeah. is. I agree. You've got about 200 other ones that are worth seeing, too. So wait right. Not all Congratulations. Not all of them. <laughs> <laughs> I've been known to tell the truth. But, uh, no, but Extraterrestrial, eat. Yeah, Extraterrestrial is worth seeing. It really That's is. great. Definitely check it out. You'll get your money's worth. For sure. Uh, you can follow the podcast on Twitter, at PMC Podcast. I'm at Cole Stratton. I'm at Vanessa Radlin. Thank you guys for listening. Thanks for being here, Michael. Uh, my pleasure. 
Subscribe to the Pop My Culture Podcast on iTunes. Check us out online at popmyculturepodcast.com and follow us on Twitter at PMC Podcast. Thanks for listening.